privilege to open up the Word and, and jump in to see Jesus that we just sang about, worshipped together uh, here this morning. Uh, we, I love Christmas. We are a week away, exactly. Um, and man, I love, my wife loves to put ha- uh, lights all over the house uh, in the weirdest places. You open up the toilet seat and there they are. I don't even know how she does it. HEA loves us this time of year, right? I feel like I'm walking around in a Hallmark movie in our own home. So I'm just waiting for the hour 57 mark for the snow to fall perfectly out the window. Then we can step under the mistletoe and kiss each other with a cup of cocoa in our other hand, right? Uh, I love the lights. I love caroling. I love the excitement of presents still. I love the terrible Hallmark movies. I I love terrible Christmas pajamas. I like watching other families in their matching Christmas pajamas. Uh, We will not do that, dear. Um, I'm not alone at this, right? We're, we are, uh, we, go, we go crazy at Christmas. I mean, it's right in the song. It's the most wonderful time of the year. So how do you argue with that, right? And we spend, in the United States, a year meals and the crazy holiday schedules. We run from the forever dance recital to the family gathering to the kids' Christmas concert to the work party to we're just running, running, running. But mostly that's revolving around family and relational dynamics. Well, we're stressed about what's it going to look like this year and, and which, which side, who's going to get the kids and am I going to be alone and are we going to be able to get along, all of those things. Hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near, but for many of us that glowing heart is actually heartburn. Am I right? For those who battle with depression, they actually say two in three find that the holiday season just worsens that depression. With those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings, when friends come to call, you feel a pressure to respond in like kind, but your insides feel a lot more like Scrooge uh, than Buddy the Elf, right? Often the season can just highlight grief and trauma and, and loss and loneliness, seasonal affective disorder, you name it. And Christmas can often feel like a season of contradiction, right? How, how is it both the most wonderful and at the same time can feel like the least wonderful time of the year? And why is that? There's probably a lot of things going on there, but I think one of them is that Christmas reawakens us to a hope, a hope in a, in a world that could be better. Like we, we think if we can just get the right amount of loved ones around us, we find the right presence for each other. If we get the lights and the food and the entertainment kind of all arranged in the right way, then maybe we can at last feel some peace on earth or at least distract ourselves from the lack of peace in our lives for a couple of hours or maybe a day. And much of that is the anticipation, right? The anticipation as we look toward Christmas morning that maybe things will be right. And if not this year, maybe next year, right? Next year, all of our trouble, single day, and the inner demons of our own hearts that need constantly exorcised. We find profound truths in God's word that help us this morning. So we're going to look at this popular story and some of the events and the people in this story, the good news as told by Dr. Luke. I want to pull out three characters for us this morning in Luke 1 and 2. The first one's Mary. With Mary, we find the paradox of finding good in what the world calls bad. Finding good in what the world calls bad. We do have some fill-in-the-blanks in your bulletin if you want to follow along. You, you know the Christmas story, right? The angel Gabriel shows up, tells Mary, who's very much a virgin, that she is soon to be with child. 
We pick up the story in Luke 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. What does this mean, she says. You're calling me favored? The Lord is with me? And we see a humility here in Mary. Who am I to be one that's favored among women? Who am I to be one that the Lord is with? And then we go on. The angel says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So not only is the Lord with you, but the Lord is going to be in you. You're going to give birth to a son, the son, not just any son, but the son of God. And so Mary asks a very understandable follow-up question in verse 34. How can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? Mary says, let's back that baby truck up for a second and talk about something here. Right? I'm a virgin, bro. That's the Hebrew, actually. You don't get that from... Your English translations, that's why I'm here for you. Verse 35, the angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. Gabriel says, Mary, the same God who can bring life to the barren womb of your geriatric relative Elizabeth is the same Father God of the impossible who will through the power of his spirit implant in you his very son. Now, Joseph and Mary were engaged or betrothed, if you want to sound a little more Jane Austen, faithfulness. Essentially could have branded her with a scarlet letter, socially shamed and shunned that no one would marry her from that point forward. She was seen as damaged goods. At best, her family might let her into their house if they didn't kick her out as well and was a, she would be essentially forced into a life of prostitution culturally. Mary knows all of this, right? She knows her reputation is at stake. She knows that her future with Joseph is at stake, that the rest of her life hangs in the balance here. And it's in that context that makes her response to what the angel just said all the more incredible. She says in verse 38, See, I am the Lord's servant. I do whatever he says, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. And the angel leaves. Both Mary and Joseph here, we get his side over in Matthew, have to take giant steps of faith. The line, the Holy Spirit impregnated me, that, that makes the dog ate my homework look like JV level excuse making, right? Like, this is crazy. Who's going to believe that? How would they themselves actually be able to believe that? Mary had to believe that God's way was better and true when it appeared to be impossible and wrong. And Mary and Joseph both had to take a step of faithful obedience when everyone around them would have shamed them. No one else is believing that. They're like, stop it, right? You slept together. Just call it what it is. They would have been accused of living in disobedience, living the wrong way, living out of step with God's way. 
But like Mary, we have to believe and trust God's way, even when it doesn't make sense to us and the world around us says that it's wrong. See, what we know about our God is that he created mankind. He created marriage. And therefore, he created sex. And sex is good. It's, it's beautiful. Therefore, we must also believe that God's design for sex is the best way, the best approach for human flourishing. I like what Matt Chandler says. He likens it to fire. Fire is good in the right context, right? Christmas season, fire in the fireplace is good as we gather around it with carols and cocoa. Fire in my lap is bad. Fire in my hair is bad, right? It's good in the right context. In the same way, we embrace that sexual intimacy is only to be between the union of a one male and one female for life, we find the truth, the beauty, and the goodness of unity and diversity. That God has chosen to bring two very different people together as one. We see the truth, beauty, and goodness of limiting ourselves to one other person for life versus the lie that we will be happier if we can sleep with who we want, when we want. Or the lie of pornography, the lie of self-absorbed gratification on demand, the objectification of the one on the screen, and even the way we contribute to the trafficking world on the other side of the screen. It's for us who are single to embrace God's truth, beauty, and goodness that we are now, at least in this period of time, called to celibacy. Right? If God is not providing a wise choice, a Christian spouse, up to this point, that we can trust God to provide all that we need for life and godliness. And this is where the church comes into play. This is where we are the family of God to provide relational intimacy as friends, as a true church family for those who do not have uh, that kind of intimacy with a spouse and for all of us. And the world calls these beliefs, the things that I just spouted off, they see them as bigoted, hateful, closed-minded, backward. And like Mary and Joseph, our good sexuality is called bad by the world. But we trust God's design is best for our flourishing. And therefore, like Mary, we say, I am the Lord's servant. Therefore, may it happen to me as you have said. We take the hard steps of faith in God's way. But just as important, we must live out and speak out these truths in love, not by being jerks to the world around us. We love those who shame us, who call what we're doing bad, just like we would love any other sinner that's in need of a Savior, the way that I was loved as a sinner by my Savior. And, and we're not called here to, to, to be, oftentimes we just kind of get morally arrogant. And we rail against, I think the church today often just rails against the LGBTQ community uh, for coloring outside of God's sexual lines. Maybe we, we rail against that on a Facebook post and then click on the other link on our laptop and look at the pornography or emotionally cheat on our spouse or whatever it be. We are all sexual deviants in one way or another in need of a savior. So like Mary, we have her conviction, but we also have her humility. And let's be careful also not to reverse the gospel. Because I think oftentimes we get it backward and we say, you need to behave yourself. It was the reality that the Lord was with her. And, and, and the reality, and in fact, that Christ was going to be in her, right? The word favor there, it means grace. And so Jesus entered her just like he does into us by faith through grace to those who say, may it happen to me as you have said. 
So let's put our trust in his way, to put the fire where he tells us to put it, in the good context, and then speak and live that truth out in love. All right, we talked about sex. You guys ready to go to politics? Here we go. Number two. See you. Merry Christmas. All right, so Caesar. Caesar, we find the next paradox is finding strength in what the world calls weak. Finding strength in what the world calls weak. The famous opening uh, verse here in Luke 2, um, we see in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. So I want to pause here on Caesar. Who is this guy and why is his dressing so, so tasty? Caesar Augustus was the first Roman emperor. They're moving from a, a republic to an empire. And it will become the strongest empire the world had known uh, to date. His, uh, he is the son, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who is known as Divine Julius, which is also what I call my order at the Diamond Mall. Can I get one Divine Julius? I love, love, love those things. Uh, so he is, so Julius was seen as divine. He was seen as not just a ruler, but as a, a god himself. And therefore, Caesar Augustus, his son, was seen as a son of God. He even called himself Divi Filius. Meant son of God, super humble guy, right? Uh, August or August um, means exalted or sacred. We even use that word our, our day of the month, but when we use it as a noun, it means uh, respected or impressive. And Caesar was the title that was given to the emperor or the king at the time. So if you put all that together, Caesar saw himself as the son of God, the exalted, holy king of the world. Blaspheme much, right? This is the way he sees himself. Augustus enters a world that's coming out of a time of chaos and war and poverty. And for the first time, the whole known world is under one rule. We have peace. We have unity. They're enjoying prosperity. Here's our guy, the king, who at last has brought what they called Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome, peace on earth and goodwill to all men. And it lasts for over two centuries. That's pretty good, right? That's pretty good. And it's understandable that people would ask, is this man the solution to our problems at last? The problem is he's not, right? Because he's just that. He's a man. And we see La Tourette says it this way, Augustus and his successors had not solved the basic problems of the Mediterranean world. They had obscured them. For what appeared to be a failure in government, they had substituted more government, who was under his control, so he could see from whom he could extract money and power for his own glory. But the, the world's most powerful man ever was just a tool in the hands of the true king. Because God had promised hundreds of years earlier that his Messiah, his true Savior, was going to be born in a little town called Bethlehem. And you know, in, in Micah, the famous prophecy, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. God promised this would be the city that is... Messiah, his son, would be born, and God's always one who keeps his promises, right? So how do you get this poor young couple up in Nazareth to get down to Bethlehem? They certainly wouldn't have had the means. You think inflation's bad these days. They, 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 financially, they were hard up, and it was also not a, a safe journey, right? So they would not have been inclined to travel. So how do you do that? And he works through the political savior of the world as a mere pawn in his plans. Look at verse 3. 
So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, in the, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David. So Joseph goes home, where he's from, his, the line of David, which is also significant, right? And Jesus is born right where God said he would be. See, God sees, says, I see your decree, say Caesar, for your own glory, and I'm going to raise you a decree to bring Joseph to Bethlehem. What Caesar intended for his own self-aggrandizing glory, God uses for the good of the world and his glory. And at the height of Caesar's power, whoa, that was close. At the height of Caesar's power, enters a little baby. And God, at his seemingly lowest, his most powerful and vulnerable, but that weak, vulnerable baby in the manger is actually the true son of God, exalted, holy king of the world. And the one that the father has appointed to bring true and everlasting prosperity, protection, and peace to this world. I was talking to a guy after election day uh, last month, and he was freaking out because of some of the candidates that won. They weren't the guys he wanted to win. And he was just nervous about where everything was going. He's like, I just can't believe it. Being palm of his father, even when he was staring down the barrel of suffering on the cross. And if we truly believe that the father has the same care and control of our lives, that we too will find ourselves relaxed, no matter which party controls the White House, no matter who's running things in Juneau, or any other circumstance of our life, we know that our Father's eye is on the sparrow. And this paradoxical, profound truth in the story is that true power is found in weakness. This is what Paul, when he's talking to, to God, he has this back and forth in Corinthians, and God tells him, my grace, Paul, is all you need. Why? Because my power actually works best in weakness. So now, Paul says, I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. See, when I try to go Caesar's route, when I try to control my own little empire by my own strength, I just make a royal mess of things, right? Like, and is that's pro I'm guessing that's, that's your situation as well. When we try to take control, things go south. And true power is actually found in relinquishing control, relinquishing our own attempts at power and surrendering, relaxing into the care of the Father and trusting that His Son is the true King. His Son is making all things right and He's coming back soon. So our caution here is to be, to, to be careful, not to put our hope in the power of politics. There are good and better Caesars out there. There are good and better senators than others president, so it, it matters what we vote for, right? We want to be involved in that process, but those things are not ultimate, because just like the people of Caesar's day, we live in a world that starves for a savior, but we're looking for kings in all of the wrong places. More human government is not the answer, nor is less human government the answer, nor a different form of it, nor a different political party. Jesus taught us to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, so we pay our taxes, we abide by the law. We're even grateful for the country, the day that we live in. And yet, we don't render unto Caesar what is God's. We don't give Caesar our trust. We don't give Caesar our, our worship, our reverent fear, ourselves. We relax, not because of who's in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of, a, of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. 
and peace on earth to people he favors. So these men are, are Jewish shepherds. And so they know. They know of Yahweh's promise that a sacrificial lamb is coming to take away the sins of the world. And they hear the good news. After hundreds of years, the true shepherd of Israel has come. And this is the reaction. Their reaction to the news shows they found all their worth in this baby that the rest of the world would have regarded as insignificant, unimportant, and worthless. Look at two things we see from the shepherd here. First of all, they, were, they saw Jesus. They saw Jesus. Verse 15. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, they, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem. Like we've heard this news, no detours, a beeline to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they hear the good news, they want to go see what they've heard. And I think maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're skeptical about this whole Jesus thing. I don't presume that because you're in this room that you're just on board with all of this. I want to encourage you into a, a real encounter with the person of Jesus to dive into the Gospels themselves, to meet him there, to ask the hard questions and, and see who Jesus is, see what happens. This go- we, call it, we use the word gospel. It means good news. And this is not just about having the right information. It's, it's the news about a person, and it's our personal encounter with the person of Jesus that's going to lead to life. Not just that we have the right information, but that we experience personal transformation through a relationship with the living God himself. This is what happens with the shepherds. They see Jesus. And then from that, we see that they shared Jesus. After seeing them, they reported the message. They were told about this child. They go and they tell everybody. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. When they see Jesus, and he lines up with what they had heard about the Messiah. They can't help themselves but telling everyone they know about this good news. This is worship. We get the word worship comes from the, from the old English worth and shape. What we give worth to, what we give value to, shapes us. And they found all their worth in the person of Jesus. And therefore, he shaped them. And that shaped what they did from that point forward. We, we see this happens in our lives too. What we worship, what we give value and worth to shapes us. And what shapes us leads to how we live, how we talk to other people. So if we worship politics or a particular polit- political party, when we're in conversation, that's what's going to come up in conversation. That's where conversation is always going to kind of default toward Donald Trump. Joe Biden, they will come and they will go. America, based on the course of human history, will at some point fall if the Lord doesn't come back sooner than later. But we can, in the midst of all of that, relax into the arms of the Father under the kingship of the one who we, along with the shepherds, see are shaped by and share with the world. If we want a revolution... We want things to truly change. We want to see hope in this world come into reality, to really see peace on earth. We look at the person of Jesus, this baby who grows up to be a man, spends most of his ministry here on earth discipling these 12 guys in the middle of nowhere. 
dies a criminal's death, raises from the dead, sees a few people, and pieces out. But he leaves his spirit and his word. And a few of those followers start the greatest movement the world has ever seen to this day. You know, in America right now, there are 5,000 Walmarts. That's pretty impressive, right? Hard to go somewhere and not see a Walmart. And that can be very helpful. There are 5,000 Walmarts in our country. There are 300,000 Christian churches. Jesus has outlived every empire, every political agenda. His church will be built. And at Christmas time, the most, the most and least wonderful time of the year, it rekindles our hope in a better world. The paradox is we will find real worth in what the rest of the world calls bigoted, calls weak, and calls worthless. And this is our salvation. No earthly Caesar or king or president. No moral behavior of our own, but this swaddled Messiah. See, morality and politics, they do matter but only in light of the person of Jesus. Only he can bring us everlasting peace, prosperity, and protection. We can say we worship Jesus, but the question is, Jesus said a tree will show itself by what? It's fruit. And so the question is, what what is in the center of our conversations? How are we spending our time? What are we driving our energy toward? Who or what are we being shaped by, and what are we sharing with the world? That's the question we've got to ask ourselves this Christmas season. So you pray with me. Father God, We thank you. We thank you for your word, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Father, we see in our own hearts our proclivity to look at other things for worth and protection and peace. And this time of year, Father, we know so many of us, we're excited about Christmas.